Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamar Zanetti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So uh, you're joining us for the second part of our conversation with Russ Hudson. We've been talking about the movie Contact and Enneagram Type 5. Uh, we're going to continue that conversation and some of the philosophical implications of the movie and uh, how it affects our work on ourselves. So, uh, Russ, thanks for being here again. Thank you, Mario. Uh, Tamara and Maria Jose are with us, as always. Yeah, Hello. <laughs> Hello. All right. Great. So Drumlin gets the, the nod to be the first person in the machine. Uh, yep. But a religious fundamentalist interferes. And as Drumlin's about to get on the machine, uh, this guy sets off a, a, a he's a suicide bomber, right? Which, you know, well, here, here comes a theme starting to develop in the world, right? Uh, so Drumlin dies, the machine which cost billions and billions of dollars. Little Carl Sagan reference there with the billions and billions. Uh, they realize that there's another one, okay? Uh, Haddon informs Ellie that there's another one, and okay. this time she gets to go. Go ahead. Yeah, there's there's another important plot point there, these yeah. little pivot points in the yeah. movie. There are a lot of pivot points in it where something gets said that sort of sets the next part of the film in motion. And I think it's a way the film was sort of playing with the idea of fate or destiny. Ellie is, of course, totally sad, and feels betrayed that she didn't get to go since it was her discovery, her idea, her whole thing. She had been the the sort of force behind all of this. And Drummond, who had actually fought against her on it, is going to go. Yeah. Yet she just lets go. This another yes. five-ish reaction. Okay, yes. that's not going to happen. So, okay. And she just lets it go and gets ready for the next thing. She's there at the launch site to be there and help out and witness this historic interplanetary interstellar voyage. And of course, no one knows there's going to be this uh, explosion, but her last conversation with Drummond, he looks at her sort of patronizingly and says, you know, Ellie, I can imagine how you feel. He goes, it would be great if we lived in a world where honesty and integrity were the way things were. But we don't live in that world. He's telling her, look, I'm a realist and you're not. And and in the real world, you got to do this. And she just looks at him and says, funny, Mr. Drummond, I always thought the world is what we make it. Yeah. And then he, he's, adios, goes off to his death and she watches in horror. And then, as you said, finds out there's another spacecraft. Yes. Yes, I wrote that part down in my notes here because you're absolutely right. That was a, a a telling exchange. She meets or is contacted by Haddon again. This time he is in the Mir space station. So just being on an airplane, uh, living on an airplane is not sufficient <laughs> to establish his wealth and weirdness. <laughs> so they've got to... <laughs> Well, Good. no, he had cancer. I, I understand. Yeah, I, he, I, didn't, I, he didn't yeah. tell that. He didn't tell that in the first part why right, right. he really was in the plane, but yeah. being at the the lower pressure yeah, and so forth yeah. was slowing down the advance of his cancer. Yes. So now he had to be on the space station to be yes. sufficient. Yeah. But that too, if you think about it, is just metaphorical. Yes. Say more. Well, non-attachment is realizing the un the how absolutely unavoidable our death is, mm -hmm. our mortality. What's it, It's like they had an Onion headline many years ago I love. Despite major efforts by World Health Organization's death rate remains 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. and, and there is this sense of he's going to see this through 
one way or the other before he's a goner. He's going to throw his all of his resources into this. Whatever it takes, he's doing it. And there's something about him very well understanding his time is limited and how he's concentrating everything he's got to make this happen and to find out what there is here. His yeah. last little, as he says, his, his last little gift to humanity, although yes. later on they imply it was a hoax. I, I don't think so myself. Yeah, I don't either. I, I agree. As I was watching this again, I was thinking, I really want to check the science on whether low gravity yeah, um, has that. any, uh, you know, <laughs> impact on cancer. Uh, I don't know. Rate. Yeah, but uh, so you're so you're right. So yeah, so it was, and again, he was an interesting character. And for me, without jumping, you know, ahead to some things I want to talk about, this idea that scientists don't care about humanity. Yeah, is one that always frustrates me. And it, yeah. there were a couple of comments about this early on. And he's a great example, as is she, of the the real compassion of most of the people that I've ever met who are in the sciences, right? Yeah. Uh, this real desire, they're doing it to make the world a better place very often, right? And not to necessarily strip the world of resources or, you know, take advantage of it or something like that. So I think there's this tremendous humanity in all of these characters in the movie yeah. that they might not get credit for. There's another theme here that sometimes unholy alliance between people who do want to strip the earth sure. and just use everything for wealth and science and science's dependency on resources, usually external, like you have to have a patron, you have to have the lord of the, of the fiefdom to enable you to do science or art or what have you, that you know, it was just by good fortune that in this case, Haddon, at least in part of his soul, wanted to do something good, wanted to do yeah. something for humanity. So it was also a little statement about there were a lot in the movie about that quite uh, sometimes unholy alliance. Yes. And how it didn't have to be that way. Yes. It could, there was a place for, let's say, industry writ large corporate culture writ large and science and the advance of knowledge to work together in a way that wasn't that really was for the benefit of humanity right. not just for profits yeah and, the, and that shows in the final question when they were about to choose whoever was going to go on that mission that they said what would you ask them and she said like how did they evolve without killing each other without yeah. <laughs> uh, destroying everything yeah yeah I a very Carl answer. Sagan, a very Carl Sagan kind of response, right? Yeah. You could see him uh, responding in very much the same way to the same question. And uh, I also just do feel, uh, you know, the urge to point out that I, I completely agree with you, Russ, about that unholy alliance. I think that we also see an unholy alliance on the religion side. Of oh it yeah, as absolutely. Well, right. So there is this, you know, I think that evil people will leverage whatever they can uh, in order to do, you know, nefarious things. Yeah. Well, I always tell people, it's like when people ask me, can you use the Enneagram for nefarious purposes? I said, of course. I said, anything that has power that can be used for great good can be also used for destructive purposes. There are no exceptions. Yeah. Religion, science, technology, medicine, no exceptions. Everything that's medicine can also be a poison. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really... an why we learn the Enneagram. It's where we're coming from. So she gets into, she gets selected to go into the pod. Now, again, there are further conversations between her and Palmer, and he's starting to reveal that, you know, even though he was against her going and he undermined her by asking her questions about uh, whether she believed in God or not, that one of the real reasons he didn't want her to go is because he didn't want her to go. And he starts talking about Einstein's theory of relativity and uh, varying age rates, you know, between uh, people who go away and people who don't. So, you know, they sort of squeeze that romantic angle back into the movie for a little bit there, outside of the uh, Jefferson Monument and the title pool there. She gets on the pod, 
let's see, this is where the 2001 references really kick in, mm-hmm. you know, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's the wormhole scene, right? So she's in this pod and things start to happen. She's all wired up so that she will be communicating with the control center, but all the communication devices start to go on the fritz, right? Uh, low Wi-Fi connection, I guess. And um, <laughs> so, um, but the floor starts to change colors and she starts to see things. It becomes translucent. And then she is thrust through this wormhole. Somebody describe what, what happens there. Uh, words fail me. Well, it's kind of like you said, it's like the end of 2001. She goes on a, on a subspace journey. She goes through hyperspace, as it would yeah. be called in some circles. And I thought, again, they did some really interesting details with this. Uh, I remember reading many years ago, that if you could indeed create a wormhole, and they, they mentioned this term in it, it's called a Einstein something bridge. Right. If you could fold space and go through, that for you subjectively, it would there'd be all sorts of space and time distortions, right. which they did their best to show in the movie. Right. But also you would experience space as curved, and that the, the tunnel, so to speak, would appear as an archway, a curve. And they put that in the film. I was yes. very impressed that they, they had that little detail. Uh, yes. You know, and at, again, when she finally goes through this, it isn't just one stop. It, it's like there's a network that's been laid out in the galaxy, I suppose. Yes. By um, And later on, the, the alien that looks like her father... Mm-hmm. <laughs> tells her we didn't make this it was made right. long before we arrived and who we don't know who made it but maybe they'll come back one day uh so yes. but there's this idea that there's this network and there's these relay stations where you can get on or off the hyperspace linkage system and she goes through several stops and she's amazingly stunningly i thought again the special effects were gorgeous really really well done we're seeing galaxies and globular clusters and you see a city on a planet near a multiple star system and then she's off in the next bit next bit it's like riding uh through subway stations or (laughs) changing trains on a metro system yes uh the the stuff in her craft just kind of all flings up to the ceiling and she kind of goes into a fetal position and floats down into this probably simulated world that looks yes. like a, a tropical beach. And right. this is exactly like the the room yeah. that uh, that Delea goes into at the end yes. of, of 2001. Yes, and her fetal position, again, a reference yeah. to the, the, the space baby space in, in baby. 2001. And uh, so where she ends up is Pensacola. If you remember in the movie, she yeah. uh, her first you know long call was to somebody in Pensacola. She draws a picture of it, and the place where she ends up looks like the picture she made that like had on her wall. Uh, where she is approached by some force taking the form of her father, played by David Morse, uh, who we haven't talked about yet. I'm a big David Morse fan. He's a great actor. Just a great, great actor. Really good character actor who has tremendous versatility. I mean, he's he's got that face that's so gentle. And so even though he's a huge guy, I've actually seen him. He lives, or at least used to live in Philadelphia when he was, uh, because he made a a TV show here and uh, decided he liked Chestnut Hill so much that he moved there. So, and I saw him on the street one time and he's a big, big guy and, you know, broad shouldered and everything, but he has that gentle face can also play a real scary um, guy as well. Uh, so since we're on character actors, want to point out uh, William Fitchner's character yeah. who played the blind guy whose name was anybody catch his name by any chance? Kent Clark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a little clever Superman reference there. Uh, but uh, I'm a big fan of William Fitchner as a character actor as well. But anyway, so she, meets her what she thinks is her father she hugs him realizes it's not her father has a conversation about what is happening here that they're just making contact okay through the form of her father because she they thought that would be a comfortable way for her uh to do it because god only knows what they look like (laughs) we don't know and it would have been just so natural that she would just believe that it was her father, yeah. you know, because it's most people, I mean, she wanted to see her father and yes. it was just the 
easiest thing to believe. And again, it didn't make sense. And she realized that it wasn't. And that shows kind of how the five mind works. It's like testing things. It's more a scientific kind of approach to it. Yes. Yes. This thing I want more than anything. I'm still going to check the evidence before I, <laughs> yeah. you know, before before I I believe it. For me, this uh, this meeting and this conversation is like like meeting the mentor and the hero's journey. So this is where she will get the pearl of wisdom and then come back into transform yes. and really going the journey and finalizing it. So so it's it's really amazing yeah. this yeah. specific conversation in the whole movie. And it's representation. Yeah. She she also she also, you know, has had her numinous experience even before she meets this being. Yes. You know, just seeing the magnificence of the universe is enough. Yes. Right. And I tell people all the time, you don't need to just listen to some guy with a long beard from India. If you really looked at the implications of science, yeah. your so called common sense reality will crumble and you will realize the miraculous unlikeliness of our existence yes. it really is miraculous and weird and yes. wonderful but yeah. that that's kind of where she comes to but the other the other thing there too is and this i'm sure is again carl sagan this being explains to her she goes as her father had said at the beginning little steps right yeah. that our fantasy of how aliens would meet us is how we would do it <laughs> Go show me to your leader, you know, land on the White House lawn and with a spaceship and give us some technology. And and maybe aliens are way too smart to do that. Right. And so they have their own way, knowing that they're meeting our civilization. Once it happens, we'll change it forever. Yes. So wanting to preserve something about who and what we are. And this is also Mm five-ish in that fives suffer the idea that their needs or their reality would somehow negatively impact the sovereignty and individual and and independence of another that we we would rather leave the relationship than have you have to go through all kinds of difficulty because of us so here here are the aliens like the five saying we don't want to screw up your whole civilization you'd become dependent on us there'd be all kinds of weird problems so no we're gonna titrate (laughs) it might take a few thousand years darling but this will happen and on the scale of the universe it's that awareness to action offers a unique approach to applying the enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations as well as for personal development What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. She comes back and the kind of the twist of the story is that from the outside, it looks as if the pod falls from the tower and just lands in the net underneath it. Nothing happens. The whole thing is about eight seconds. And, um, you know, as she comes back with this story of what happened and nobody believes her, thinks she's, you know, just had this you know, uh, delusion or something. And um, so she is trying to make people believe what she said. But even then, when they ask her, can you prove it? She basically says, no, I can't. I know it with every fiber of my being that it happened, but I can't prove it. Uh, And this is where we start to see kind of the marriage of the objective and the subjective in a truly effective and mature way. I start to think with her character and she becomes a changed character. And, you know, when they, you know, then the James Woods character, 
who we haven't talked about yet, who starts off as the national security advisor, then becomes a very Newt Gingrichian, um, you know, um, he's, he's as close senator. as we get to a heavy in the movie. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> so he's, um, you, you know, he is after Haddon for some reason and thinks that it's a whole uh, plot by Haddon that the whole thing is faked. But turns out that they're covering up that even though there was nothing but static on the recording of what happened, the recording was 18 hours long, which only the government knows. Okay. So, um, so the irony is they know that it happened, but they made it as, as if they didn't believe her. So. And, and perhaps for the reason that they, that the alien was saying that like, what would happen to civilization if yes. they knew her story was true? And some people who want to will believe her, some won't, but people will go on carrying on doing what they're doing, living in the world of zombies, just as yes. they have <laughs> since the beginning of civilization. Boy, boy, what a nice <laughs> loop back there, Ross. Boy, oh boy, yeah. Uh, Hero's but, but, journey all the way. <laughs> there you go. So I, I, I wrote down uh, what she said when she was testifying. She said, everything I know as a human being tells me it was real. Uh, I was given the gift of a vision of the universe that tells us how tiny and insignificant and rare and precious we all are, that we belong to something else, that none of us are alone. I wish I could share that, uh, that everyone could feel for one moment that humility and awe and hope. And, you know, so for me, that represents a, you know, kind of a conversion to a, a more informed and deeper spirituality. Yeah, it made me think of uh, Carl Sagan's thing about the pale blue dot as well, right? Yes. If you um, haven't heard that, it's worth a listen. Okay. So, and of course, when they ask Palmer Joss if he believes her, he says that he does. And I'm not quite sure why there were those thousands of people waiting outside uh, when she left the the, uh, the hearing. But the idea was that life was different somehow yeah. for all of them. Yeah, and I would say that it just as you would predict, there are people who just said, "Ah, the government says it didn't happen. We just saw a drop. That's that's reality. Go by and, and just again, reality is prison rather than as launching pad." But there were other people who were inclined to just believe her, and so yeah. she had this following of people that for whom she was the first person to make contact with uh, extraterrestrial civilization, which is pretty significant so just as you'd probably have in real life you'd get this polarization yes of people who believed or didn't believe and, and when uh she asks uh palmer joss if she if he believes her and he says he does he she holds his hand yes. and makes contact which yes it's a small thing but but it is also some you know i mean also a way in which she changed yes. it was the first time she reached out to yeah. someone else so that brings us to the conclusion of contact and again uh good movie i you know i i enjoyed it i i think it's worth watching now i will say that i did have some you know there were some things that got under my skin a little bit uh from a philosophical <laughs> perspective and i'd like to start discussing those now as we're transitioning into the second part of our conversation here um and talk about the importance of these uh concepts so uh maria jose and tamar i'm curious if you picked up anything about the use of occam's razor yeah it was, it was used uh, twice throughout this it was used twice in the beginning yes. and in the yes. hearing as well and uh, it was yes had oversimplified yes, exactly. <laughs> yes yes and so so go ahead Mariosa. you made a face there when i brought that up what, what you, you go ahead and show people that you're smart <laughs> no come on and come on. and <laughs> tell them why the movie was wrong about our racer yeah, so, uh, you know, what people don't understand, first of all, the way they represented Occam's Razor is not really what Occam's Razor is, okay? So, no. William of Ocker was a medieval theologian, right, who um, whose principle was to not add variables, right? When in doubt, if you don't need to add a variable, don't. Keep things simple. That has been twisted to mean that the simplest story is the correct one. Right. Yeah. And uh, we see it later where the uh, James Woods character really misuses it and adds a false dichotomy in there that I'll come back to in a second. But 
the point that was really missed in this movie is that Occam was actually arguing for the existence of God, right? Mm -hmm. So he was actually in a debate with St. Anselm, and Anselm had written the ontological argument, a logical proof for the existence of God. And Occam said to him, you know, you, you got it wrong, okay? First of all, your logic doesn't hold up. But second of all, you are trying to prove something with the head that you can only know with the heart, right? That belief in God is a gift of faith, and we can't reason our way to it. You either believe or you don't. And Occam did believe, right? So I, it's like it's like fingernails on a chalkboard when I hear someone invoking uh, Occam's razor to uh, argue against the existence of God. Yeah, it became in the film a cipher for uh, reductionism. Yes. Which is not what it is. Yes. It's arguing yes. for elegance and yes. simplicity in an understanding, yes. in a theory, which yes. sci good scientists always are trying to do that. Uh, yes. But that's not the same as this reductio ad absurdum. <laughs> it's yes. not that. <laughs> yes. And and uh, the James Wood character, I'm blanking on his name, he uses it later. He says that either, okay, what's a more reasonable story that you went to some other dimension and met these aliens, and but there's no proof of it, or that hadn't faked all this stuff, right? Yeah. I, I've oh, tried to explain this to people. What's more obviously true, that, that there's a computer in front of me, and it's a metal and glass thing, or that it's there's actually a field of subatomic particles in very precise magnetic and gravitational relationship with each other that are held together in such a way as to produce the phenomena of this thing. You know, if you take this too much, you end up with Ayn Rand's objectivism. Yes. Yes. Which which ain't what it's about. <laughs> yes, and and it's also with with this example that he used. It's a false choice, right? Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of other stuff that could have happened here as well, right? So yeah. that argument didn't hold up. So the other thing that I but, but just just on that, I think it was really good of her that she said, "Well, that could be true," you know. Yes. Yeah. So she didn't say, "Of course, that didn't happen," because I felt that. Right. If I think about it, that is an option. Yeah, she uh, says, as a scientist, I have to consider that as a yeah. possibility. Yes, yes. The other thing I, I grew frustrated by, and, and, and again, this is common, right, which I think is one of the reasons why it frustrated me, is that there was this, it's either science or religion. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, and there was this argument, well, science doesn't answer questions of meaning for us. OK, but it's not supposed to. Right. And while religion doesn't tell us the nature of, you know, reality, but it's not supposed to. Right. It's supposed to address certain things and science is supposed to address certain things. And we run into trouble when we conflate the two. Right. Um, and this is one thing that I think the psycho-spiritual community does quite often, mm -hmm. right, of conflating ways of knowing as if they were equivalent and interchangeable. Right, which right? they're not. Exactly. It, it's a classic way of understanding the law of three, in, in which law of three is not a law like gravity, or it, it means it's a way of organizing how we understand things. Mm -hmm. And in the law of three, the the dichotomy has its sovereignty. Like this gets to be this and this gets to be this. But there's also some way in which these two are related in some way that's not obvious when you're only looking from one position or the other. And when you get to see all three, it opens to a new level of possibility. I think that's what happened in the film. There's this argument, science, religion, science, religion. And she goes right. off on this journey pursuing the truth yes, without a sense of what exactly it is she's going to find and has this experience where it's not that she's coming back and conflating the two. She's still utterly right. rational and scientific, but right. she has this other dimension to her now. So the two are integrated, but they still have their sovereignty. Yes. Like a good relationship, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right. This is my side of the bed. That's yours, right? Uh, so, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it's still one bed, right? So uh, no. Um, so for me, you know, I like to think of these things as, you know, it, so it's it's all an adventure in epistemology, right? How do yes. we know what we know? And in epistemology, we have to understand that there are different 
epistemic tasks, right? Different ways of uh, knowing different things. Poor, uh, Palmer Joss uses a good example with her about proof and says, well, did you love your father? Well, prove it, right? Well, no, you can't, but of course you wouldn't because that's a subjective experience. It's a subjective phenomena, and we don't use science to evaluate subjective phenomena, Right. right. It's like, which of your kids do you like better? Right. I mean, you know, we, you know, I mean, we can't answer that through <laughs> science. Okay. We just answer it emotionally. Come on. All we're right? going to hook up to a machine and see which, which pings stronger when we name your kids. <laughs> right. So, um, so I, you know, so that for me, I think sort of perpetuated this, I guess, a false choice argument yeah. that we see in so many of these psycho spiritual conversations. Yeah. They're for different right? things. Yes. There, there was, one of the most influential books that I read many years ago, I don't even know if it's still in print, was called Einstein's Space and Van Gogh's Sky. It was by, written by a uh, professor emeritus of physics at Yale, and I'm going to space on his name right now, and um, a psychologist, transpersonal psychologist, Lawrence Lachan. In any case, what they came to is that not only are these different domains of knowledge, they each require their own symbol system, their own language. You know, we can understand that each spiritual tradition is trying to establish a meaning system and a symbol system and a way of talking about and communicating about what are primarily subjective experiences. They're objective in the sense only that they're shared, right? Oh, yeah, I at least I believe I know what you're saying is similar to something I experienced too. But they were talking about how psychology went off the rails when they were essentially trying to create, to replicate the mathematical approach of physics. And we're talking Newtonian physics to the study of the inner world of the subjective reality of consciousness. He says, you can't, he said it, it's when they developed the quantum physics, they understood that another mathematics was required to describe this phenomena that Newtonian mechanics couldn't do it. So they came up with another language. But because of the success of that mathematical model, we misapply it on things that it doesn't yes. apply to. It doesn't really work for a lot of biology either. Correct. Let Correct. alone the social sciences. So it was sort of an impassioned argument for coming up with a new scientific, so to speak, in terms of trying to create a structured meaning language system for describing internal experience and that we weren't there yet. Yes. So for, for me, this uh, something I'm curious about your opinion on, Russ, yeah. um, you know, something we encounter quite a bit because we pride ourselves when we talk about the Enneagram that we have a kind of a, a, a science-friendly mindset, mm. right? Meaning that we don't want to teach anything that goes against anything we know through science, right? right? Uh, that said, we don't feel that the Enneagram is a science no, right, in that sense, right? No. Science includes, a, you know, falsifiability, for example, right? Uh, curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I think, like anything else, uh, if we're really going to, the Enneagram, I don't think of the Enneagram as a standalone thing. Right. I think of the Enneagram as a particular framework and tool for exploring the experience of being a human being. As such, I personally have a huge reliance on my scientific training that I had at university and trying to look at things rationally. But, you know, there's also the sense the other side of the Enneagram is bringing us to shared experiences of our internal life. Again, you, you can't measure love, but you certainly know when you're in the neighborhood and you certainly know when you're experiencing things you haven't experienced before. So I, like you, I like to keep these, you know, in their own particular domain, but they're both relevant to right. understanding what it means to be a human being. And like I said, for me, science is a catapult into, quote, the mystery or the mystical, even if you will, to really begin to see the universe. My common sense view of reality is blown to pieces. If so-called common sense and rationality, as most people understand it, is pre-Newtonian common sense. 
It's not scientific in any shape or form. It's what science has led us to for the last 250 years. People don't look at the implications of the understanding. If I really understood that, like I was saying before, if I could have some kind of amazing X-ray vision and see the environment I'm in right now on the atomic level, let alone the subatomic level, what would I perceive? What would I understand? How could my clunky Enneagram fixated view of reality stand that level of truth? Can't. Science can be just as much an opening to a profound realization of the truth of reality as the mystical. And in that sense, where they both lead to, I think, did get covered in contact and and getting it's a mystery. I'm never going to understand it all. Just going back to that sense of awe, I think that many times you naturally or culturally, we naturally assign that state to the more the more kind of spiritual religious domain, but it's not necessarily seen in the more scientifically minded uh, approach to life. And I think it's there all the time. Yeah. And that has, has been for me a discovery along the years. Uh, I was not naturally able to see it. And now I think that if not the same it could be even bigger, that sense of awe in, in science or, or not, but they don't need to compete. Right. But it's not absent because faith is not involved. I think that mm. they're different and it's there and it's huge and it drives a lot of the scientific discoveries. Yeah. 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 For me, faith is not an adherence to a belief. Mm. Faith is arrived at through understanding. Like, I don't need um, belief to have a sense of gravity. I don't need belief to know the taste of a strawberry, right? And and just to say, as I was touched by what you're saying, Maria. When I was a little kid, a little five boy, very isolated, little strange lad, I was having a difficult time. I was not a popular kid. I had a rough time. I loved learning and I had teachers who were sometimes protective of me, but get along with the other kids was a nightmare. However, at night, my special time every night, and I'm talking about when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, uh, my mom, who was an eight, realized this was something very important. She would lay a blanket out on our backyard and I just lay out there sometimes for hours, just looking at the stars. And the stars were my experience of spirituality. They were the awakening of a mystery. When I looked at them and beheld them and said, they're not just these little twinkles in the sky, I started to grok what I'm looking at and then where we are, like, oh my God, how much more do you need to wake you from your zombie state? Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So, um, for me, kind of uh, one of the takeaways with this is that um, the importance of discrimination and care of how we apply ways of knowing, right? And uh, this understanding that there are different ways of knowing different things. There are different tools for becoming more skillful 
at knowing different things, right? So one of the things we emphasize a lot in our work is learning to understand cognitive biases and, yeah. you know, recognize logical fallacies, you know, uh, using critical thinking tools for things. And when you and I were talking a while back, Russ, you made an interesting comment about how in order to truly cultivate the higher mind, we have to do the work kind of at the, you know, the more mundane mind, right? So do you mind commenting on that? Our higher mind needs a conduit in order to have its form of knowing be both communicable, but also actionable in our world. You know, so the way I see it, when I look at the great scientists, I'm not talking about the, the generic scientists. I mean, the great ones. They, if you look at their realizations, there was a leapfrogging of rational, systematic thinking, dealing with logical fallacies and seeing through them. But their fundamental insight was not the result of that thinking. But had they not done that thinking, they wouldn't have had that insight. Like if Einstein wasn't thinking about what he had learned about the nature of physical reality, he could not have had the insight he had riding that train in Switzerland, right? But when he had that understanding, when that part of our higher mind kind of does a download, so to speak, it's like we get a sense of it, but there's a now a process, and this is where science comes in big time, of understanding what it is you understood, of being able to describe it, communicate right. it, find out how it actually works in the framework of logical and rational thinking. And I would agree with you strongly uh, that, you know, we live in a time where there is a, a kind of a devaluing of that. I think part of it is because part of it is, of course, religion always pushing back on one side of it. And the other side of it is people turning their very limited form of rationality into a religion that turned a lot of people off. And yeah. and people are always going to push against yeah. what they perceive as authority. But is you know I I've made the argument like here in the United States, people say, well, there's not enough emphasis on the body, man. It's really all about being in the body, and the body isn't emphasized. And I said, okay, find me a town where there aren't you know a hundred different yoga classes, Pilates studios, gyms, people working out, people have shit on their wristwatch and everything to count the number of steps. Are you kidding me? And how many uh, philosophy yeah. clubs you've been to lately? Where is there not argument <laughs> of mundane, idiotic positions I got from the internet? And where is there exploration of meaningful questions that we have about our life, our existence, our society? It And how many people are participating in those? Are you kidding me? So there is, I think, yeah. my hope is for a kind of renaissance. I think that on one side, I'm seeing a kind of renaissance happening in spirituality, which Palmer represents in a certain way, the seeds of, in where you know people who are Christians yeah. or Muslims yeah. or Jews or Buddhists or whatever, they're not satisfied with the status quo of their religion as it was handed to them. And they're more interested in these more profound existential questions. And so there's a whole new generation of people coming up through the religious side of things that are more open to the kind of conversations that we're having. But I also think there's a, a return to a, a re-embracing of the power of inquiry, of rationality, of asking the right questions, of being curious about reality, and of training our mind to think, which I've said over and over. I know a lot of people who yeah. care, but I don't know too many people who know how to think. Repeating an opinion you've already said or heard somewhere is not thinking. Is that your wish, Ross? Or is it's it what you're definitely seeing my wish, but I do see happening. it happening. I mean, for example, uh, Richard Rohr tells me that, you know, he had a certain kind of Catholics that used to come study with him, but he's getting a flood of young evangelical Christians who would traditionally have been the most fundamentalist, the most anti-rational, the most closed to the kind of things that Richard Rohr is presenting. And yet there's, it, there's literally tens of thousands more, maybe hundreds of thousands of people suddenly interested. But I also see people looking at asking sociopolitical questions for sure. 
but more of an interest in the bigger philosophical questions. What I think there's a role, and, and this is maybe where what all of us are doing here, is to sh- help people again see the relevance of scientific inquiry as a part of this. And that's a, that's a mission I'm happy to be part of. I think for me, you know, I mean, this is something, you know, you and I have discussed, you know, many times over the years and even uh, taught about together at the IEA conference a while back. The and, and I think it's increasingly more crucial that people develop yes. uh, both sides yes. of these capabilities that we're talking about, right? That, uh, you know, we the big challenge we have that our ancestors didn't have and even our parents right. didn't have was the Internet. Right, this bombardment of nonsense that we are faced with, but we are not either naturally equipped or or learned in addressing. Right, how do we tell you know truth right. from nonsense from a factual perspective? Right, and so developing these tools is critical for society, I believe. Uh, and I think that was one of Sagan's points as well, right? When he was doing his work, you know, if you look at The Demon Haunted World, a book that everybody should read, he was pointing out that there are consequences yeah. to believing stupid things, right? The other message for people, you know, more spiritually inclined is that seeking truth, you know, if you want to be a seeking a seeker after truth, it works at multiple dimensions and multiple levels, right? I mean, the science tells us certain kinds of truth, and there are other ways of finding truth too. So, I, I think that's an important message that yeah, and get out there and as when in the best of all possible worlds, they balance each other. They don't, as you said, conflating mm-hmm. them is not the answer. You know, intuition does not replace rationality right. and rationality doesn't replace intuition. But it, you see, we run into problems because people don't really understand what rationality is, nor do they understand what intuition is. Just the impulse that passes through my transom yes. may or may not be an arising of some kind of intelligence. It just may be part of my mechanical programming mm-hmm. and historical response pattern. That's not intuition. But in the same way, having what I used to call an airtight philosophy is not rationality. (laughs) Right. Right. It's uh, there's a there's a distinction uh, between yes. naive intuition and expert intuition. Right. Naive intuition is me thinking, ah, yeah, it looks easy enough to fly. This <laughs> that plane, guy's doing right? it. Right. Um, I'm as smart know, as him. Big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, he could do it. I uh, exactly right. You know, I'm not going to follow my intuition and get behind the you know the the, the controls of a seven thirty seven. Um, but somebody who is very skilled at flying a plane, it does become intuitive, just like it does for right. a skilled musician or a skilled athlete, etc. And so it's a matter of understanding that if you want to have deep insights and deep intuition, you have to do the hard yeah. work at a more mundane level. Right. So Newton can watch that apple fall and have an insight about gravity. No, right? <laughs> that's not happening to me. Right. Because, you know, for me, it's you just an apple form because I haven't done the hard work of, you know, <laughs> I, I haven't invented calculus yet. Anyway, so all good stuff. Yeah, Maria Jose, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I think that there are some things that for people who are, I don't know, more practical or maybe not used to discussing these things, I, I think that the fact that you are. Um, science-minded doesn't make you a scientist and you don't need to be a scientist, you know? So here we're talking about science and spirituality, but I think that being science-minded and uh, be more skeptical and thinking more clearly are things that you don't need to be a scientist for. And that does help you in your whole life, including spirituality, I think. And uh, in my case, as I said before, it's not what I necessarily learned from the beginning or how I learned to uh, think. But as I grew up and I started becoming more aware of these things, I realized how my spiritual and kind of emotional life, it's yes, richer absolutely. if I think better. And I can see people better. I mean, like the human being in front of me, I can see them for more for who they are, more objectively, and react more effectively. And and I think that's kind of being spiritual. It's kind mm-hmm. 
being humans, you know? So I think that it might seem as something that it's not, that doesn't touch us, but it's something that it's relevant to all of us and how we think more rationally so that we can be more effective in all domains. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Ideally, and this is part of some of the deeper spiritual traditions, if you're really studying Zen, for example, on a profound level, or if you're studying Sufism in a profound level, the, the heart and mind are meant to work together. And that doesn't mean, as you said, conflation. But the way I explain it is learning to think clearly is literally clearing your mind. It's like clearing the junk there's so much junk in our head. And we're, as you said, we're getting bombarded with more. But to have your head center operating correctly, it quiets down. It's clear. You can think clearly. And as you were just saying, Maria Jose, you can perceive more clearly. But that clarity of mind becomes a receptivity such that the heart can now respond to reality instead of be reacting to the many ghosts that are running around in our heads. You know, when we're, whether we're looking at practical business things, we're trying to improve our relationship, we're trying to deal with social justice issues, racial inequality, any of those things, we have to understand that as programmed beings, reaction machines, as I said, our first response to almost anything is going to be predicated by our history and all the mountains of input and imprint that have been put into our consciousness. Can't be otherwise. When Gurdjieff said that man is a machine, he wasn't saying it as an insult. He was saying, if you wake up, that's the first thing you'll notice. You'll see the helplessness of your imprinted opinions, reactions. I was thinking recently about I was reading a review of the movie The Elephant Man and uh, David Lynch's yeah. second film. Our friend John Hurt Wonder again, right? John Hurt, again, wonderful film. But I was struck by the fact that people could not help when they first encountered him having this physiological reaction. Women almost always screamed, just scream. Other people would just start weeping. People could not but have, we aren't, we're programmed to not expect to see a human being look like that. Learning with the Enneagram is to take a breath and take a second look. Because that second look gives us a little space from our programming, and that is where our mind is a little clearer and where our heart can actually respond to what's really there. So we find out that John Merrick, though looks terrifying to our initial instinctual response to him, is a kind, sensitive cultivated, creative man. And people came to love him. You know, I think that's what Lynch was trying to show us in the movie. But that our first response to almost everything, our quick draw McGraw, gun out of the holster response, is almost always wrong. Or let's say limited, very limited. That's what it means to be fixated, in a sense. It's it's getting we're learning to grow a part of us that includes discrimination, logic, open heartedness, intelligent self care, a lot of things. All this stuff we're learning about 
is predicated on a little bit of freedom from that initial automatic response to pretty much everything. What's uh, coming to my mind here, Russ, as you're uh, discussing that and discussing Gurdjieff's idea of the machine is the correlation we'll see in something like uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The uh, Selfish Gene, where he talks about how, you know, we're basically just gene-carrying robots, right? But the robot has the capacity to rebel against the impulses of the genes, against the impulses of our The nature. ghost in the machine. Exactly, right? right? And so, uh, so even though, yes, this is our starting point, we can overcome it with work. And this is the message that all the wisdom traditions from science and to religion to spirituality tell us. Uh, and I think that's the takeaway message of contact as well, that, yeah. um, that these two... Uh, mindsets to tools for knowing even though by somebody who is not informed and has not done the work and this is the thing i i before i wrap that up the, the point is if if you don't do the work of getting through the elemental piece of the science you don't get the message that says but we can change Right. And and in spirituality, it's the same thing. If you don't do good spiritual work, you get caught in this fundamentalism. Right. And you don't get to this point of the the numinous and the compassion that is at the uh, ultimate state of this. So this is the the takeaway message. You have to do the work. And when you do, you find this grandeur that, uh, you know, Darwin closed uh, Origin of Species about. Right. There's 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 grandeur in this view of life. Right. Yeah. I I find that. If we haven't figured out how to step into that gap, we tend to make our God in the image of our fixation. We tend to turn our reaction system into the truth and then insist that other people do it. And if it makes for bad religion, it makes for bad science. You know, if we can't see how there's an emotional agenda cooking under our positions, we're not going to get very far in this, in the search for truth that whether it's something we want to be true or something we don't want to be true, or somebody hurt our feelings when we were in grade school and we're going to show them for the rest of our lives, you know, there's all that. And it's okay. That's the human condition. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed about, but there, there is a journey of noticing our mechanisms, right? And and to get that there isn't another option. <laughs> if you start waking up, that's what you're going to notice. And you're going to notice the world of zombies. Yes. You're yes. going to notice, wow, you know, just walk around the supermarket with your eyes open and look at the people and you're going to go, oh my. And then you have to see your own reactions and go, oh my. And and then maybe something else begins to be possible. But the other thing you said that I want to piggyback on too, this takes time and persistence. To learn science, certainly, to become a good scientist takes you many, many, many years. But even, as you were saying, Maria Jose, to just learn to think clearly is not a quickie. You're not going to pick it up in a weekend workshop. You get some tips and you get some things to practice with. But you got to work at this for a while before there's some freedom from that reaction machine. It takes time. And the same is true for spiritual practice about cultivating your heart or your presence or any of it. it it's not a quick fix. And the, I always tell my students, too, if you do it when it's easy, it'll be there for you when things are hard. Well, I guess we're at the end. We've said it all. Our listeners walk away enlightened, and uh, uh, you know, Hopefully. at least I got that going for me. So, uh, <laughs> you and Bill Murray, yes, <laughs> good. On the I always like course. when somebody gets the Caddyshack reference. That's great. So, um, all right. So, um, Russ, thank you so much for being with us, and you know, this has been a very special uh, episode for us. It's always good to talk. Uh, again, you know, we've uh, been friends, the four of us, for quite some time now, and uh, have had conversations like this uh i think on four continents which is kind of cool right um and uh, now here we are coming well from three continents although new york is on its own continent in some ways right so (laughs) um, but uh anyway so russ thank you so much for uh being with us and discussing contact uh tamara maria jose uh tamara maria jose any final uh, comments you want to make uh before we start wrapping up now that i enjoyed it and i was thinking that in the following versions of the podcast 
we can invite Ross again for to discuss other topics. <laughs> there it you was go. fun. I'd love to. I had, <laughs> I had a blast with you guys. It's been really fun, really fun. Yeah, to do I, this. Yeah. I always loved. I enjoyed it a lot, actually, and I'd like to repeat it again. So if we can have other episodes, and uh, maybe you can join uh, one of our clubhouse uh, rooms as well, uh, Russ. You, you will go. enjoy it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm always up for a good yeah, time. Right. <laughs> as long as there's uh, king crabs <laughs> involved. <Yeah. laughs> We'll have to share the pictures of the uh, king crabs at some point. So anyway, so thanks for everybody for joining us. Um, and uh, this has been another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, we have one more to do. Furs Bueller's Day Off and Enneagram Type 7. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Find out more about the Enneagram and our offerings at awarenesstoaction.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a review. We'll see you next time.